Well, we want to talk about, in this particular session, the issue of forgiveness, because it's such a critical thing in relationship to biblical reconciliation. Um, and before we do, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing on our time together. Gracious Lord, as we come before you, we um, realize that times of conflict and trial and disruption among the body of Christ um, are difficult times. They're heartbreaking times. And especially when a member or others, maybe more than one, decide not to follow the Word of God and decide to go off on their own, and um, that causes a huge uh, grief on the part of those who want to follow you. But nevertheless, we realize that in the world in which we live, some of these kind of circumstances have to happen. And um, it also helps us to understand that we as individuals have got to be faithful to the Word of God in everything that we do, and especially in our interpersonal relationships. We've got to honor you and seek to please you in all that we do, uh, and not seek our own pleasures or our own desires or our own cravings, not allow these things that are a part of this world become dominant ruling desires in our heart. Now, Father, as we get into the issue of forgiveness, I pray that you'll continue to use this particular subject material to bring about genuine reconciliation between brothers and sisters in Christ. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, take your Bible and have it handy, if you would, because we're going to get into the issue of of forgiveness and what Scripture says about forgiveness. There are two essential qualities that are necessary for complete reconciliation um, and restored unity in conflict the attitude and the practice of Christ-like forgiveness, and the issue of humility. Now, we don't have a time in our session to go in the humility side. Maybe sometime we can come back and do that kind of thing. But at least we're going to be able to take a look at the issue of forgiveness. But when these two qualities are absent, there will never be true reconciliation, but only a truce. God God desires more than a cessation of hostility. He wants his body to be perfectly unified. And this is possible, no matter what the disagreement may be, if there is a knowledge and a desire to achieve Christ-likeness in all the parties involved. But in order to do that, we've got to be able to understand genuinely what the Bible says about forgiveness. What does Scripture really say about this? this particular issue. Well, the primary Greek term that's translated forgive is the word ephemi. It means to send away or to release. So in reference to sin, the idea of forgiveness actually means to pardon. To pardon. But forgiveness has also been rightly described as a promise because When God forgives, he promises that he will 
never hold our sins against us. Now, I want you to see this, so let's take our Bibles and let's go over to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, and we're interested in verse 34. Here we have an example of Jeremiah talking about the coming new covenant. And in verse 34... He says, um, at the end of the verse, he says, Yahweh declares, For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, all of this is within the context of Jeremiah talking about the future coming new covenant from an Old Testament perspective. And under this new covenant... God says that I'm going to forgive their iniquity and, I, and their sin I will remember no more. Let's go over to a parallel passage to this. That's Isaiah 43 and verse 25. Isaiah 43 and verse 25. Same context. Different, in this particular case, different prophet. But the context, again, has to do with the new covenant and the coming new covenant. He says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Now, in these two passages, we get a clear understanding on how God practices forgiveness. Okay? And the wording on The terminology is very deliberate, and it's very precise. Don't miss this. I think one of the problems that we have in our, from a human perspective, is that um, we advocate sort of an attitude of forgive and forget, The Bible does not advocate that at all. In fact, let me suggest to you that God does not forget anything. He doesn't forget anything. He remembers everything. This is not saying, when he says, I will not remember your sins, he's not saying that I forget your sins. If God forgets the sins of his people, then he has forgotten most of his Bible because most of his Bible is about the sins of his people. God does not forget. We forget. We're human beings. There are some things that I've heard and experienced in life that I wish I had a little button on the back of my head and it was a forget button and I could push that little button and go, oh, I don't remember that anymore. That's great. All right. <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to unsee that or I want to unsee that I should say. I want to unsee that. Type of thing. I, I want to forget it. Press the little button. But God doesn't forget anything. Because listen to this, forgetting is a passive action. It's always in the passive voice. Not remembering is in the active voice. It's the difference between the two. Not remembering his active voice. God says 
that under his forgiveness, he actively does not remember our sins against us any longer. Now, that's very deliberate, and that is very purposeful. He actively will not remember our sins against us. This is very intentional. It's God does this as a part of his forgiveness process, and in doing so, he is making a promise. I will not remember your sins any longer. Corey Tin Boom used to say, God takes all of our sins, buries them in the deepest part of the sea, and then erects a no fishing sign. I like that. All right? He takes our sins and buries them in the deepest part of the sea and puts up a new fishing sign. Can't dredge those back up anymore. Not in his eyes. And that's wonderful. And that's relieving. And we all ought to become charismatic about that, at least in our expressions, because we ought to be all excited about the fact that God does not remember my sins any longer. This is wonderful. I'm free from these things. There is no sin that he has forgiven whereby you're going to die and go to heaven and God's going to say, you remember this? No, no, he's not going to actively remember them against you. In other words, in his accounting of sins, they're no longer attributed to your account. That's what it says. I will actively not forgive. So, That's why we say, if you take a look at your notes, the best definition of forgiveness is a promise of a pardon. It is the promise of a pardon. God promises under the new covenant to absolutely pardon all of our sins and not hold them against us anymore. So this is key. So when we're talking about this, we're talking about then what does that mean in relationship to human forgiveness? What is forgiveness? All right? God talks about his forgiveness in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 8, Colossians 2, 13 and 14, Matthew 6, 12, Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. Again, if we had more time, we'd go through every single one of those and explain what it's talking about. Our forgiveness is described in passages like Ephesians 4 and verse 32. Let's go over to Ephesians 4 and verse 32. And notice how, again, the Word of God is very precise here and very deliberate in its wording. Paul's talking about interpersonal relationships here, and he says, instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, or there's our word, tender-bowed, that we talked about in our first session. It's tender-bowed, graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has graciously forgiven you. Now, you'll notice here in Ephesians 4.32 that our forgiveness of one another in interpersonal relationships is directly related to us being forgiven. Right? 
So let me posit this to you. It is impossible for an unbeliever to forgive. It is possible for an unbeliever to forgive because they don't understand true forgiveness because they have never been forgiven. They've never been forgiven. Imagine living a life having never really, truly been forgiven. Sometimes in the Christian life, we kind of presume upon our forgiveness. And we think that our forgiveness is just a part of life, when really it's quite unusual and it's quite remarkable. We have been forgiven of all of our sins that we've ever done in the past. None is held to our account. This is remarkable. This is an opportunity for rejoicing every morning. We have been forgiven. And in turn, because we have been forgiven, we can now forgive others. Because now we understand what forgiveness is. Not just intellectually, but experientially. We understand that. We understand what it means to be relieved of the debt of sin and to not carry a guilty conscience any longer. We understand that. Which should cause us, in that understanding, to be incredibly forgiving in relationship to others. Right? That's what should happen. This was the problem with the parable Jesus talks about in the unforgiving servant. He's forgiven such a massive amount of debt, and yet he's not willing to turn around and forgive little smaller debts that others had against him. Well, then did he really understand his forgiveness? So, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13 the, in a sense, the twin of Ephesians 4 and verse 32 talks about we have to bear with one another, graciously forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you. So all of our forgiveness of everyone else is predicated upon the fact that we have been forgiven. Wow! Now, if you haven't been forgiven, you don't know what I'm talking about. You don't know. You have this intellectual assent to it, but you don't understand. If you're not a believer, you don't understand. And no unbeliever can understand that. But if you are forgiven, this puts you in the position of being able to forgive others whatever they do against you. So what does that mean? That means essentially three things. First of all, it means that I will not, when I say I've forgiven another person, I will not remind you of this sin. 
unless it would be absolutely necessary for your good. Why? That's, that's what God has done for us. God does not go back and dredge up our past sins when we sin again and say, well, look at this. You've done this again. And look, at it. no, he doesn't do that. We're forgiven our sins. So when we forgive other people, I'm saying I'm not going to hold this sin against you any longer in the future. This is an active not remembering. It is an act because this is what God has done for us. He has actively not remembered our sin is against us. We are actively not remembering that other person's sin against us. I will not remind you of this sin in the future. The second thing it means is I will not mention it to anyone else unless it would be absolutely necessary for your good. So I'm not going to go around and talk about it behind your back. I'm not going to talk about it with my best friends or with my spouse or with my children. I forgive you. I'm not going to go talk about it with other people in the church. I forgive you. That's it. Settled. In other words, I'm choosing to actively not remember your sins by not mentioning it to anyone else. Now, those two are difficult, but the third one is the hardest. The third one says, I will not allow my mind to dwell on it. And I think in years, almost 40 years of counseling I've had, this is where people really get tripped up really hard. They may be able to say, okay, I'm not going to remind you of this in the future. Okay, I'm not going to talk about it behind your back. But then they dwell upon it and they become bitter and resentful and angry over the years because they recall that and they rehearse that sin over and over again in their thinking and in their mind. And every time they see that person, they feel themselves getting upset. Why? Because they have violated this. Genuine forgiveness says, I will not allow my mind to dwell upon this sin anytime in the future. I realize that's a sin if I do that. So when I say I forgive a person, that means three things. Number one, I'm not going to bring it up to you. Number two, I'm not going to bring it up to others. And number three, I'm not going to bring it up to myself. I will actively not remember your sin based upon these three things. I will actively not remember your sin based upon... This is the promise that I am making just as God makes his promise in Jeremiah 31 and Isaiah 43 under the new covenant to not actively remember our sins against us. I am making an active promise not to hold these sins against you any longer. Wow. That's wild. This is why we say the Bible does not teach forgive and forget. The Bible teaches forgive in order to forget. That's what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach forgive and forget. The Bible teaches forgive in order to forget. Because the more you don't mention it to them, the more you don't talk about it behind yourself, uh, behind their back, the more that you actively 
get rid of all the thoughts and remembrances of that sin and replace it with good thoughts about that other person and good things about that other person, then the more that you do those kind of things, the, the more you will actively forget it. Um, I said that in the first session. Forgetting is a very passive thing. Not remembering is a very active thing. Uh, in our ministry life, my wife and I have lived in several different locations in Ohio and Michigan and California and several different homes we've lived in. I don't remember the addresses of all the places or the phone numbers we used to have of all those places back then. I imagine if you got me started on one of them, I could probably recall it, but I don't remember any. Why don't I? Why do I not remember those specific pieces of information that are part of our past? Because I don't use them anymore. I don't use them. And the more I don't use that information, guess what? The more I forget them. I've had people in the past that I've forgiven. And I know it's been really hard to work on, especially that third one. I'm not going to allow my mind to dwell on it. But if you do a successful job, then as years go by, that person comes and says, you remember that disagreement we had? And I honestly say to them, I don't remember what it was about. I don't remember it. That's when you know you're doing a good job. Back in the time, it was a pretty heated thing. But you've worked on this so hard, you don't even remember it anymore. You've forgotten it. That's why the Bible doesn't teach forgive and forget. The Bible teaches forgive in order to forget. That's what we have to do. So we are commanded to forgive. So when we are, we are sinning, if we refuse to make that promise, the promise of a pardon. Therefore, forgiveness is a matter of obedience and not a feeling. <laughs> this is, and I run into this in counseling nowadays. And you know, I, I really appreciate Generation Z. I really appreciate them because Generation Z, feelings equals reality to them. All right? And I know that's a problem. It's got lots of problems to it. Um, but I'll have young people say to me, okay, uh, what if I'm commanded to forgive this other person, but I just don't feel like it? <laughs> Because what they're basically saying to me is, if I go ahead and forgive them, and I don't feel like it, I'm a hypocrite. And I appreciate that about Generation Z. They hate people who are hypocritic. Generation Z hates people who are ingenuine, fakes, do things just for external purposes. They, they hate that. And I love that about Generation Z. But, you're not hypocritical if you go against your feelings. Did you hear me? You are not hypocritical if you go against your feelings. I mean, I travel a lot. 
less lately, but I've traveled a lot. And sometimes when I have to travel cross country and do a seminar or a conference or whatever the case may be, I have to get up real early in the morning, go down to LAX or to Burbank Airport, catch a flight out. My alarm goes off at three o'clock in the morning. I can guarantee you 100% of the time, I don't feel like getting out of bed. 100% of the time, I don't feel like it. But I go ahead and do it. So, I'm a hypocrite. Because I've, I've gone against every feeling in my body telling me, stay in bed. No, I'm not a hypocrite. I'm not a hypocrite at all. Because I'm going by what is right. What is true. Truth, righteousness, trumps feelings 100% of the time. So, if I'm commanded by God to forgive someone, even though I don't feel like it, and promise to pardon them, that's what I have to do. I have to do that. Guess what? I found out an amazing thing, that when you follow God's commands, ah, get this, your feelings follow that. At first you don't feel like, I don't want to forgive them, I don't want to forgive them. But then you follow the truth, and you say, you know, it's a good thing that I forgave them. I need to do that. My wife sometimes counsels women and she'll have a woman say to her, I know I need to forgive my husband. I know, I know, I know I need to forgive him, but I'm just not ready yet. Really, she says. What if God did that to you? Oh, I know I need to forgive you. God's sitting up there in heaven, (laughs) but I'm just not ready yet. You'd be in deep trouble. You'd be in deep trouble. This is a command issue. What is this? I'm not ready. All that is is that I just don't feel like it. All right? I I don't want to obey this command. I just want to do it. Oh, no, no. We've got to do it. Why? Because we have been forgiven an entire lifetime of sin. That's why we can be forgiven Forgiving because we have been forgiven. That's why we do that. And it's a sin for us to break our promise after we make it. So we must keep it regardless of how we feel. We must keep it regardless of how we feel. Number one, I'm not going to bring this up to you again. I'm not going to bring it up to others, and I'm not going to bring it up to myself. And in following those three things, I am promising to forgive you. Forgive you. Now, whom should we forgive? That's the question. There are some actual examples of transactional forgiveness, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit. 
For example, in Matthew chapter 18, where it talks about the unforgiving slave repents of a huge debt and is forgiven then. In verse 26 and 27, but refuses to forgive a fellow slave who also repents of a much lesser debt. Philemon, you've got note how Paul does not encourage Philemon, the slave owner, to forgive Onesimus, the slave, from a distance, but sends him to Philemon so that he can see his repentance and his salvation in verses 15 and 16. So what are we talking about? Whom should we forgive here? Well, this is where we get into a really critical distinction between attitudinal forgiveness and transactional forgiveness. Attitudinal forgiveness and transactional forgiveness. Why? Because some passages of Scripture clearly imply that we can only forgive those who ask for it, like Luke 17, verses 3 through 5. Or three through four, I should say. While others seem to imply that we should forgive everyone who sins against us, regardless of whether they ask for it or not. Like example, Mark chapter 11 and verse 25. So how do we understand that apparent discrepancy? Well, I believe one of the best ways to make is to make a distinction between what the Bible theologically refers to as transactional forgiveness and what it refers to as attitudinal forgiveness. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, attitudinal forgiveness has to do with like Mark eleven twenty five, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have any anything against anyone. Now that is comprehensive, right? Now Jesus is giving a hypothetical situation here in Mark eleven. There's a man that's gone to the temple to pray. And he remembers that someone has sinned against him. Now, the offending party is not there in the temple. It's only this man and God. The only two parties present. And in fact, the offending party is not even asking for forgiveness. But here, uh, Jesus says that if you go to the temple to pray and you're staying praying, if you have anything against anyone, this person who has sinned against you, you need to forgive them. Um, now, even though we may not be able to fully reconcile with everyone who sins against us, and we already talked about that at the beginning. In fact, sometimes that's what conflict does. It divides people and shows those that are willing to follow the Word of God and those who are not willing to follow the Word of God. But our attitude towards them should never be one of anger or bitterness or resentment or any kind of ill will. We need to treat them kindly and graciously. Romans 12, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Or where Paul says, if possible, sometimes it's not. As far as it depends upon you, sometimes it doesn't depend on, upon you. Live at peace with all men. So we must desire their best. We're commanded to love them. Luke 6, 27 through 35, which means that we will do everything that we can to bring them to repentance 
and we will always be ready to reconcile as Psalm 86 and verse 5 says. In fact, let's go back to Psalm 86 and verse 5 just for a moment. Here it talks about God's forgiveness of us again. Psalm 86, verse 5. This is a psalm of David where it says, For you, Lord, are good and by nature forgiving and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Now, occasionally I take a little bit of exception to some translations, uh, and I do so in a, in a most humble way. In, in, but I think this actually could be translated a little bit better, even from the LSB. Because I think the better translation says, For you, O Lord, are good and ready to forgive. I think that's the best understanding of the Hebrew there. You, O Lord, are good and ready to forgive. And abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. And if you trace the phraseology in the Old Testament to call upon the Lord, it always equals repentance. To call upon the Lord means to repent. So what this verse is saying is, The Lord is ready to forgive all those who repent. That's the way our Lord works. He is ready to forgive all those who repent. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. And abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. So in the similar way, this is the way we need to be in relationship to other people who have sinned against us. So it's really interesting because in the first session we read, Matthew chapter 5, the fact that if you're going to the temple, if you're going to pray, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, then you're supposed to be reconciled to him. And here, in Mark 11, 25, it talks about a man goes to the temple to pray, and in this particular case, you have something against your brother. So one, back in Matthew 5, it's where your brother, um, you've sinned against your brother, and here is where your brother has sinned against you. So oftentimes, this is why we say, um, who should initiate this reconciliation? Is it the person who sinned, or is it the person who sinned against? Well, the Bible says, yes. This is a little saying that I like to use in counseling. He with the sore toes goes because he's the one who always knows. All right? He with the sore toes goes because he's the one. Whether you've been sinned against or whether you've sinned against someone else, you need to go to your brother. doesn't matter. It's your responsibility. You don't sit around and say, well, they sinned against me. I'm just waiting for them to come to me. No, no, no. You go to your brother. You don't sit there and say, all right, I know that I sinned against the other person. But I'm just kind of waiting for the perfect... No, no, you go to your brother. 
He with the sore toes goes because he's the one who always knows. In other words, the person who has the sore toes is the one who knows. He realized that God has brought this to his conscience, so he needs to go and reconcile with his brother. That's what he needs to do. That should always, like God is, Psalm 86, verse 5, we need to be ready to forgive anyone who repents. Now, Mark eleven twenty five is a good example of that. Another good example is Luke 23 and verse 40, 34. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, you know, you know the context here. This is the Lord Jesus hanging on the cross. And there are some people who say, well, there's a good example. Jesus forgave them. No, he didn't forgive them. What did he do? He prayed that they might be forgiven. Right? He could have hung there on the cross without even praying and leaned off the cross and said, I forgive you and I forgive you and I forgive you and I forgive you. He doesn't do that. He prayed that they might be forgiven. And by the way, all of Christ's prayers were answered. And I believe that his prayer was answered in Acts chapter 2, where there was massive repentance in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. He prayed that they might be forgiven because many of these believers had never, or many of these people who had done this had never really repented. Or you got Matthew chapter 6, verses 12 through 15, and Luke 11 and verse 4. Father, forgive us and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So, it's pretty obvious at this particular point that we now need to forgive others in our own heart, attitudinally, no matter what they've ever done, if anyone has sinned against us, that takes care of anger and bitterness and resentment. Holding on to that for years, we have to forgive them in our heart no matter what. That is our responsibility. So we can conclude from those verses and others concerning love and graciousness that anytime someone wrongs us, we should pray to God in this way. Father, you know what has happened between me and so-and-so. Help me not to be angry or bitter at them, nor to seek revenge in any way, but help me to love him and desire only his good. Please work in his heart and bring them to repentance so that we can have a reconciled relationship. Use me in this way, in any way that you can to help him. That should be our prayer and that should be our attitude. And for a believer... That help may involve confrontation on the basis of Matthew chapter 18. And for the unbeliever, it would involve witnessing, sharing the gospel with them. It would always be that. So we can say this. Attitudinal forgiveness is really critical. And attitudinal forgiveness always happens within the context of prayer. Every time you see it, it's always within the context of prayer. Throughout the entire New Testament, it's always within the context of prayer. 
We need to forgive anyone who has sinned against us no matter what. That should be there. But what about transactional forgiveness? Just as God does not make his promise of pardon to people unless they repent, we cannot actually say, I forgive you to people unless they admit their sin and repent. Why? The answer is because then we, that's not taking sin seriously. Therefore, the transaction forgiveness is conditioned in that we can only be reconciled to those who repent. Take your Bible. Let's go over to Luke 17. All right. Now you've got the brother present in Luke 17. In all the other cases, it's prayer. It's only you and God talking. But now the brother is present. Luke 17 and verse 3 says, Be on guard. Jesus is speaking to his disciples here. And by the way, anytime that Jesus says, Be on guard, we've got to really be on guard. <laughs> That's pretty serious. This is going to be hard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Happy tomato. This is not. Um, This is, this is a serious sin that has caused a, a breach in your relationship. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Conditional clause. The implication is you can't forgive him. This is with your brother present until that brother repents. Why? Because it doesn't take sin seriously. I can't forgive and offer the transaction of forgiveness to my brother, even though I've forgiven them in my heart until that brother repents. Just as Psalm 86 and verse 5, our Lord is ready to forgive all those who call upon him who repent in this way. Attitudinally, we're ready to forgive. In our heart, we're ready to forgive so when that person does repent, it's instantaneous that we offer and grant them the forgiveness. And then he says, if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Now, wait a minute. There's no opportunity to wait for the fruits of repentance seven times in one day. Really? <laughs> wow. No wonder, Jesus said, be on your guard. It's like going to work every day. And you're working next to a guy who's a brand new believer. Some of the work that you're doing with him gets him a little frustrated. And he gets upset and he gets angry. And he turns around and poo, right in the kisser, you. He says, oh, I shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. It's a sin. I need to ask God to forgive me. Will you forgive me? And you're rubbing your, sure, I'll forgive you. An hour later, gets frustrated. Boom! 
Whoa! You say, wait a minute! Whoa, 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 wait, wait. Oh, forgive me. I'm working on this thing, you know, and trying to control myself and my anger at this. And you say, I want you to work harder (laughs) on this. And this happens seven times in one day. No chance to inspect fruit. You have to go on the basis of their word. If your brother says, I repent, forgive him. Attitudinally, you should be set already in your heart to do that. Whoa. Really? The apostles can't believe this. I can almost see them at this particular point throwing their hands up in the air and saying, Oh, Lord, increase our faith. Oh, that's what they do in verse 5. Oh, Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you have faith like a mustard seed, you would say to the mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Jesus doesn't want people throwing mulberry trees in the sea. He's just using this as an illustration. Here's a big tree. If you have a little bit of faith, just a little bit of faith, you could do unbelievable things. In this particular case, it's faith in him. And then he says, he says, but which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down and eat? No, he didn't say that. Will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat? And clothing yourself properly, serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you may eat and drink. Why? Because that's the slave's duty to do that. The master doesn't say, hey, come in, cool yourself down, have some fresh lemonade. Uh, let's, why don't you eat a little something after being working in the field, and then you come and serve me. No, no, he doesn't say that. He says, come and serve me. The slave is thirsty, he's hungry. But he knows that's his duty. That's the key. He knows that's his duty. That's the key. He knows that's his duty. So verse 9 says, Is he grateful to the slave because he did the things which were commanded? No. Well, in this way, he says, you also, when you do all the things which are commanded of you. Now, who's making the command? Jesus says to the disciples. That means to you and I. We are unworthy slaves. Where does that come from? Realizing that we have been forgiven an entire lifetime of sin. We have done only that which we ought to do because that is our duty. To forgive mm-hmm. people repeatedly mm-hmm. seven times in a day, yes. Oh. Really? Yeah. Now elsewhere, if we had more time, we can develop this a little bit more. Elders in the church are commanded to inspect fruit, see if a person's really repentant. But on a new personal level between one-on-one between two Christians, if a person says they repent, 
You have to forgive them. You have to forgive them. Based upon their word. Whether they mean it or not is not for you. You forgive. Which means I'm not going to bring it up to you. I'm not going to bring it up to others. I'm not going to dwell on it in my own heart and mind, become bitter and resentful towards you. I promise to pardon you. That's what I do. I promise to pardon you. So, now those who refuse to repent of their sin, what do we do with that? Well, those who refuse to repent of their sin are not forgiven by God, especially in the parental sense. Why? Because there is a difference between judicial forgiveness and parental forgiveness theologically. When we are an unbeliever, we need judicial forgiveness because God is primarily our judge. Unbelievers, God is our judge. When we become a believer, things radically change. God is no longer our judge. God is now our parent. And we can still sin against God as our parent. He's our father. In this particular case, we don't need judicial forgiveness. We've already been forgiven an entire lifetime of sin. Now we need parental forgiveness. Why? Why is that needed? In order to save us from the consequences or from the chastisement of sin in this world. We're not being punished for the sins as a believer because Christ took all the punishment. But we are being chastised not to pay for sin, but to become more Christ-like. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11 that we can be more like Christ. That's parental forgiveness. Parental forgiveness. So, so the consequences of broken relationship with an offended party, with the offended party, will continue if they refuse to repent. And that needs to be there. Luke 17.3 says that our part, of our part of our responsibility to those who sin against us is to confront them. Now, in fact, when it says rebuke, you see that word rebuke? There are different words in the Greek language for the word rebuke. This word does not mean to fully indict them. In a sense, we would say to come down upon them in both feet. This word actually means a tentative rebuke. If your brother sins, tentatively rebuke him. Because you could be wrong. Right? You think your brother sinned against you, but you tentatively rebuke him and you hear his side of the story. And all of a sudden, when you hear his side of the story, you find out, oh, wait a minute. I was wrong. I thought you'd sinned against me, but you didn't. My fault. Please forgive me. That's why it's a tentative rebuke. It's not a full indictment. If your brother sins, tentatively rebuke him. And if he repents and he says, yes, I did sin against you, then forgive him. Seven times in a day. So 
Luke 17.3 says that it's our part of our responsibility to those who sin against us is to confront them. And if we have truly dealt with our own heart attitude first, that's attitudinal forgiveness in our heart, that if we are, have a willingness to forgive in our heart and a heart attitude, then they recognize their wrong and repent from it, we can be reconciled to them. Now, this is really key because, why? Because churches practice transactional forgiveness all the time when they practice church discipline. Matthew 18 makes it clear that we cannot fully be reconciled to those who have not repented. Because if we did, we would not continue the process that's described in church discipline. In other words, that takes sin seriously. Why is church discipline so important here? Which actually, some of the model from this goes way back in the Old Testament presidents, casting people out of the uh, out from among the circle of Israel or out of the town and so on, removing them from protective graces that they enjoy, exposing them to the elements of the world and Satan. This is what the Apostle Paul talks about, 1 Corinthians 5. Turn them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that their soul might be saved. Turn them out underneath that. That's what church discipline is. When we too quickly forgive people and they haven't repented, we're not letting them suffer the consequences of that broken relationship, which they need to suffer. They need to see the seriousness of their sin. Now, you say, okay, I have lots of questions about this. What about things like covering our sins versus confronting them, covering our sins? Well, this is a critical issue. So if you take your Bible just for a moment, let's go over to James chapter 4. remember just a little bit earlier in James 4, we're dealing, as we talked about in our first session, with quarrels and conflicts among you. And later on in the argument, he says, um, uh, here, and this is where he talks about the importance of humility in verse 6, but he gives a greater grace, therefore, It says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In other words, you can't go through this whole process without humility. Be subject, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. So that shows you the importance of humility. Um, and th- this is important to see, especially in relationship to the issue of forgiveness. We're not going to be able to be forgiving, or we're not going to be a- able to seek others for forgiveness for our own sin unless the element of humility is very much there. Um, 
So that has got to be there first and foremost. Um, But the question comes, um, what about the issue of covering a sin? What happens if, if a sin is not um, is covered? What does it mean to cover a sin? Because most Christians view covering as, if I cover a sin, I kind of avoid it. I look the other direction. I act like it really never happened. I ignore it in some way. That's what covering a sin means. But the question then comes, is that what the Bible says? Does Scripture view covering a sin as looking the other direction? Take your Bible and just go back to Psalm 32 just for a moment. Psalm 32 Look how David describes this. This is a tremendous psalm um, in terms of his own sin. He says, um, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now, in parallelism, Hebraistic poetic parallelism, here covering a sin is equated with forgiveness. It's not looking the other direction, not turning your back on it. It's not ignoring it. That's not what covering a sin is. Or you'll hear some people say, well, I just covered that in love. Well, what does that mean? This this says that covering a sin has to do with genuine practice of forgiveness. Go to Psalm 85 and verse 2. 85 and verse 2. Again, you can see a very similar uh, statement here. Um, This is one of the sons of Korah. It says in verse 2, You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sins. We're here... Forgiveness of sin is equated now with covering. To cover a sin means to practice forgiveness. Not look the other direction, not ignore it. So when you're covering a sin, you're actually practicing what the Bible teaches about forgiveness. That's what you should be doing. Or what about this? Apologizing versus asking for forgiveness. There are a lot of people who do that. They apologize. I remember years ago, I taught a whole series on the issue of forgiveness in our church back in Ohio. And I started off the entire series by saying, I'm trying to teach my children never to apologize. And I thought one of our elders was going to fall out of his chair. All right. But I purposely said it that way. Because I wanted to teach that nowhere in the Bible does it ever say we're supposed to apologize. In fact, the word apology, the English word, comes from a Greek word, apologia, which means to throw up a defense for what you're doing. Or why you've done whatever it is you're doing. All right? To throw up a defense. We're not supposed to apologize. We're supposed to ask for forgiveness. 
If I were to sin against you and come to you and say, oh, you know what, I apologize, what would you say to me? Well, you'd probably say, well, no problem, forget it. But that really doesn't do anything about reconciling our relationship. But if I were to go to you and I were to say to you, you know, I think I sinned against you. It was wrong before the Lord. I've asked the Lord to forgive me. Will you forgive me? What have I done? I've thrown the ball into your court. Now you've got to do something with that. Will you forgive me? And you say, okay, John, I see it. I understand your sin against me. And yes, I'm willing to forgive you. You throw the ball back. You make the promise of a pardon, which means I will not bring it up to you. I will not bring it up to others. And I will not bring it up to myself any longer in the future. So I throw the ball back. It is my asking you to forgive me, you granting the forgiveness that brings those two parties together in reconciliation. That's the idea. Not apologizing or dumping feelings upon people. That's not our purpose. Our purpose is to acknowledge our sins, seek forgiveness, or grant forgiveness if we've been sinned against in order to bring about that reconciliation. You say, what about forgiving God? Have you ever heard somebody say that? What about forgiving God? Huh. That's such a key thing. You'll hear a lot of people say that. I, I, have a, I have a whole raft of Christian psychology books in my library. And one of those books I was reading several years ago, a woman came to uh, the psychologist who claimed to be a Christian. And she was really upset. She was beside herself and very irritated and angry over what was going on in her life. And, and the thing that was bugging her more than anything else was the fact that her husband was very short in stature. He wasn't a very tall guy. And when she had his children, all the children turned out to be short. And that just bugged her to no end. And it bothered her. Her husband was short. All of her kids are now short. She didn't like that at all. And the Christian psychologist said to this woman who claimed to be a Christian, you know what? You're never really going to get over this until you forgive God. You never are going to be. Now, why would someone say that who was a Christian? Because such a person like that, like that is more influenced by their psychology than they are influenced by what the Bible says. Because psychology says you need to say that to that particular person because it'll make them feel better. Oh, yes, I'm right in my expectations in this case. God's kind of made a mistake here with me. Shouldn't have made that mistake with me. So there, I need to forgive God. It makes me feel better. It has this cathartic experience. Oh, Yes. That's heresy. That is pure heresy. We don't need to forgive God of anything. He needs to forgive us of everything. We don't forgive him of anything. God is not a God that needs to be forgiven because he has never done wrong. Ever. All right, what about this? What about forgiving unbelievers? Well, we would definitely say in our heart before God, we have to forgive anyone of anything. I mean, the Lord Jesus said that. Mark eleven twenty five. 25. 
But can we offer them transactional forgiveness? The answer is no, because they cannot repent. There's always going to be a problem. And besides that, their sin against us is not the issue. Their sin against God is the issue. When we start playing around offering them forgiveness for something that they've not repented of, which they can't repent anyhow, and besides that, 2 Timothy 2.25 says, repentance is a gift that comes from God. It's not something that we conjure up with our own will. Repentance is a gift that comes from God. And they've not repented. Then we're treating their sin and everything that's in a trivial manner. We can't offer them forgiveness, but we can offer them something even greater, and that's the gospel. Our brothers have sinned against us, or unbelievers have sinned against us. Let me tell you a quick story about that. Several years ago, and my family will remember this, when I was still pastoring, we had a horrible tragedy that occurred in our church a family, a young couple was planning on getting married. They had come to me for premarital counseling and they had had their first session in premarital counseling. They were all excited about getting married. And uh, usually on Monday nights, I would counsel couples like that. So a week went by before the next counseling session and their premarital counseling. And um, I, I just preached Sunday morning surgery, Sunday evening service and dealt with a lot of things that were going on in the church. I was really tired on Sunday night, went to bed. My wife and I were in bed, and I can remember hearing off in the distance the squeal of tires and a thud, and I didn't think a lot about it and went to sleep just a couple blocks up from our house. This young couple was traveling down a road, and uh, a drunk guy... 60 miles an hour, went through a stop sign, T-boned their car, drove their car clear across the road into a telephone pole where she was sitting on the passenger side, was just wrapped around that telephone pole. They were rushed to the hospital, she and her fiancé. And I got a call from the parents, and their family had just been brand new to our church, and I didn't know them very well at all at that particular point. And they said, our daughter's been in a terrible car accident. Will you come to the hospital? I said, sure. So I threw my clothes on, ran to the hospital not far away. Went into the emergency room and doctor comes out from behind the curtain covered in blood and looks at me and says, you must be the pastor. I didn't look like, I didn't think I looked like a pastor, but I said, I am. He said, well, you need to tell them I did everything I could to save her, but I could not save her. Um, I said, wow, I... I don't know this couple. I don't even know where they are spiritually. And so I went in. By that time, grandparents were there and everybody, and I had to share the news that their daughter was gone. A lot of tears, a lot of sorrow. The fiancé had been taken to another hospital. So he was still alive, so we couldn't do anything more there, so we went to the other hospital. And as they... The, the car that hit him hit him so hard that it it caused a microscopic hole in his aorta. So he was bleeding to death on the inside. 
So they're rushing him into um, surgery. By the way, I didn't tell you that always standard operating procedures, especially with new people who we did in premarital counseling, we, the first counseling session was always give the gospel. So we give him the gospel to this couple, had them go home, do their homework in the gospel. So there I am running along the gurney with the nurses pushing him, sharing the gospel with him again, and he prays to give his life to Christ. And they shove him into the operating room. And I thought to myself, wow, it's probably the last time I'm ever going to see him. And um, miraculously, they saved his life. He, he survived. He later on went on to move to Texas as a Christian guy, ran into a Christian girl who had lost her fiancé in a bad car accident, and they got married. They have several kids, and <laughs> that's the good side of the story. But I was left with the, the parents of the daughter who was killed. And it was very gruesome. And I remember in those early days counseling the parents and through this, her mother came to Christ. The father was already a believer. Mother came to Christ and her, her brother came to Christ through all the terrible circumstances that went on. But in those early days, they were going to the court to watch the court proceedings on this. And the guy confessed to me in counseling that he was planning on killing this guy who had killed his daughter. He was a big guy. And they put this little sheriff in the courtroom there he this big guy probably would have overcome the sheriff grabbed his gun and killed him he, that was what he was planning to do i said I, you know back away from this you can't do this you know that you're a professing christian this is not good good you can't pile evil upon evil and expect good to come out of this you can't do this it's not going to soothe your conscience it's going to make things worse i'm telling him and of course he didn't do it fast forward 10 years it's a month before I leave Ohio to move to California to teach. They call me up. They said, uh, the parents, they said, will you go to the prison with me, with us, to see this guy who killed our daughter? I'm going, are you sure you really want to do this? Oh, yeah, we want to do it. Sure, I'll go. So I went with them. We sat in this big room. They stationed four of the biggest sheriffs or guards there in that room and I sat there and I watched them I've never been a prouder pastor in my entire life say to the this guy you know what you did against us was a horrible sin you took our daughter's life but that's not nearly as important as your rebellion against God. And they proceeded to share the gospel with him. And I'm going, I can't believe this. And I'm looking across the table at this guy, and he's got tears in his eyes. He's got his lawyer sitting next to him. His lawyer's got tears in his eyes. I'm looking at the two guards that I can see because two of them are behind me. And these two guards have got tears in their eyes. They've never heard anything like this before. They said, you know, we wish you could repent, but we know that you can't because you don't know what repentance is. And that's what opened the door to the gospel. You know, their son now is an elder in the church back there. Her brother is an elder in the church. 
You can't forgive an unbeliever because they can't repent. And anyhow, that's not the big issue anyhow. Even though the unbeliever has sinned against you, the real issue is they're rebelling against God. That's the issue. What about forgiving dead people? What about that? You probably heard that before. Shouldn't we forgive dead people? People have done terrible things against us. No, nowhere in the Bible does that ever say that. Sometimes you'll hear psychologists talk about, well, a person who's died, get a, get a chair, put it in the middle of the room. Imagine that person's there. Read them the right act about all the sins that they committed against you and kind of offload all those feelings and those experiences and those emotions on that particular person. And, and it just, it, 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 it becomes something that's too close to what the Bible calls necromancy, which is talking with the dead. And the Bible forbids that. We don't need to do that. We don't need to forgive unbelievers. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say, or excuse me, unbelievers. We don't need to forgive dead people. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that we need to do that. And by the way, if attitudinally we've settled that in our heart, then it doesn't matter. Last of all, what about forgiving ourselves? I've had people say this many times in counseling. Well, I know you can forgive me. I know God can forgive me. I know that my husband or wife can forgive me, but I just can't forgive myself. You realize how prideful of a statement that is? God can forgive me. That's his standard. Other people can forgive me. That's their standard, but I can't. In other words, my standard's much higher for myself. Really? What a prideful statement. Nowhere in the Bible ever say, there's not a hint of it anywhere, that we need to forgive ourselves. Where does that come from? Contemporary psychology today. That's where it comes from. Why do people do that? So they can feel better about themselves and buy more into the delusion of a good self or innocent self. That's what buys into that delusion. We're not supposed to forgive ourselves. We don't need to forgive ourselves. We need to rejoice in who we are in Christ and move forward no matter what it is we have done. It's almost as if we have set up these particular standards that we try to live to rather than living by the the simple standard of the word of God. There's this little standard that I live up to myself has nothing to do with the Bible and I ignore what the Bible says, but I'm going to live up to the standard. And when I fail that standard, I just got to forgive myself. No, no one of scripture does ever say we need to do that. How should we forgive? The Bible is very clear about it. We need to do it immediately. If your brother sins and if he repents, forgive him. It needs to be immediate. It needs to be repeated in Luke 17 and verse 4. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, then you need to forgive him. So it needs to be immediately. It needs to be repeatedly. It needs to be lavishly. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. If you believe that that is the offending brother back in 1 Corinthians 5 who had committed adultery with his stepmother which 
there is a debate as whether I tend to think that that's a real possibility. Apparently, he comes back and repents. And Paul admonishes the church to forgive him. When you study the Greek terms there, basically that adds up to throw a party for him. Welcome him back with rejoicing. We just recently had that with our Joint Heirs Fellowship Group there in, at Grace Community Church. We had a guy in our fellowship group that we had to discipline in our church. That was seven years ago. But the guys in our church kept after this guy, constantly contacting him, emailing him, getting together with him, calling him repentance. Seven years. Seven years. And the Lord broke him, and he repented. And our whole church at Grace forgave him. Pulpit on Sunday morning. John MacArthur, during a communion service, read his name as being completely forgiven and welcomed back to the church. And the entire church broke into applause. I can only remember that happening maybe once or twice in the last 24 years I've been here. But we've disciplined a lot of people. So it needs to be lavishly. Why should we repent? Because we are more like Christ when we do. That's why we should repent. We are more like Christ when we do. Now, let me ask you a question. Is it possible to be too forgiving? It's a great question, isn't it? Let me close with this. Take your Bible and go over to Revelation chapter 2. In verse 20, the Apostle Paul, or excuse me, the Apostle John is stating the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in his indictment. And his review of the church there at Thyatira. And in verse 20 it says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and deceives my slaves so that they commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Do you see the word tolerate? You see that word? That word is the same word, aphiomy. That means to forgive. In this case, the church of Thyatira was too forgiving to the point that they allowed sin to exist in the church. This woman, and this is a moniker, this was a nickname that they gave her, Jezebel. You're familiar with the story of Jezebel in the Old Testament. But she calls herself a prophetess. She teaches and deceives my slaves so that they commit sexual immorality, which is probably in accordance with a lot of the cults there in Thyatira that had a lot of prostitution that was involved in their worship of the gods. And she had tried to import this kind of thing into the church there 
and the church was tolerating it. They were forgiving it. No, you can't do this. Look at verse 21. And I gave her, the Lord says, time to repent, and she does not wish to repent of her sexual immorality. I gave her time. You can't forgive her until she repents. Don't do that. You can't do that. There's a place where you can be too forgiving, and you begin to sound like the world. No, can't do that. Because that allows sin to exist. There's forgiveness. What happens when we offer forgiveness? It is the promise of a pardon. It means three things. I'm not going to bring it up to you. I'm not going to bring it up to others. I'm not going to bring it up to myself. And then when we are sinned against, first and foremost, we have to deal with that issue in our heart, attitudinally before God. Whoever sins against us, anything, anyone of anything in our heart before God. But then, when they repent, we need to be ready immediately, transactionally, to give them repentance. And if they don't repent, then we need to give them the gospel. That is so key. You've been really good today, on a Saturday morning. Been really good. Remember that our whole goal in conflict reconciliation is to see relationships fully and completely reconciled. As I mentioned before, I tell couples, when I counsel them in their marriages, I don't want your marriage to survive. I'm not counseling you for your marriage to survive. I want your marriage to thrive. That's total reconciliation. I want your marriage to be better than it was before you had this conflict. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious Lord, we're so grateful for the biblical view of forgiveness. I pray that you'll help us to be faithful as we seek to practice forgiveness with one another. Faithful to the Word of God. Faithful to the truth of the Word of God. Faithful to be able to Forgive others who seek our forgiveness and truly repent. And also, Father, faithful to grant others the proper kind of pardon that is involved in not remembering what they have done or talking about what they have done with other people or dwelling upon it in our own heart and mind. Help us to be genuinely forgiving. When we practice these kind of things, that's when true relationships are established and reconciliation takes place. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.